welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor and infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and UPMC. Today, we are getting into episode two of our series on foundational knowledge of the resistance mechanisms that underlie in gram-negative pathogens as it relates mostly specifically to beta-lactam antibiotics. Last week, we went through the first three of the key resistance mechanisms, which include efflux pumps, porin channel mutations, and target modifications, again, mostly focusing on penicillin binding protein, which is the target for beta-lactam antibiotics. So this week, we are going to talk exclusively about enzymatic destruction of beta-lactams or the beta-lactamase enzymes, which include things like ESBLs, AMPC, carbapenemases, et cetera. So there's so much to dive into, and I'm really excited to welcome back our panelists for this topic. So first for this episode, we're joined by Dr. Ryan Shields. Ryan is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, as well as the director of antimicrobial stewardship at UPMC Presbyterian Hospital. Ryan has done just a ton of research in the gram-negative space, and I get a little more into that in our first episode of this series from last week. And you guys know Ryan has been a member of the Breakpoints family for quite some time with me. So Ryan, welcome back. Thanks, Erin. Pleasure to be here. And I can't wait to talk to our other speaker about beta-lactamases today. Oh yeah, very excited. And so our other speaker is Dr. Robert Bonomo, who is making his Breakpoints debut with this series. Dr. Bonomo is an Associate Chief of Staff for Academic Affairs and a professor in the Departments of Medicine, Pharmacology, and Molecular Biology and Microbiology at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine. He also has an appointment at the VA, Louis Stokes Cleveland. He's the vice chair there. And Dr. Bonomo is, I don't know, probably the most influential person on the planet for talking about beta-lactamases. He knows everything there is to know. So we are super, super excited to have him. And no, I keep mentioning his Breakpoints debut, which means I'm going to have him come back in some way, shape, or form. So you're not escaping it now that you've joined the podcast family. But Dr. Bonomo, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure being here, Aaron. It's great being with you again, Ryan. I look forward to a nice discussion. All right. So gentlemen, we have been through the very cool and intricate and interesting concepts of efflux, porin mutations, and altered target binding as it pertains to resistance and gram-negative pathogens. And now we get to deep dive into the beta-lactamases. So I don't even really know where to start. There's so many enzymes and they're all so cool. Um, but I think let's start with ESBLs or extended spectrum beta-lactamases. These are increasingly common. We know from the 2019 CDC report that these have increased quite largely, at least in the United States. And, and concerningly and importantly, they're increasing in the community and they're increasing outside of just hospital-based environments. So this is something every clinician will encounter. It's something very important to consider how to treat. So I guess, Dr. Bonomo, do you want to get us started with so what are these ESBLs? You know, where'd they come from? Where are we at now? How do we detect them? You know, just whatever you wanted to talk about. Well, the, the, you know, the ES, you know, like I said the last time, Aaron, they have such a rich history. And, you know, I think the world needs to remember when these enzymes were first discovered. Let's say I'm going to take a point in time, 1983. We were suffering in one of the greatest challenges. Uh, um, at that point, HIV was beginning to go around the world. 
And, you know, we were all very concerned about that. And it came as a, you know, to quote Dr. George Jacomi, an unwelcome surprise, because that's how we actually, those are the words he actually used to describe that, that when this new molecule was developed in Europe, uh, you know, a cephalos, a third gen, you're not supposed to use the word third generation cephalosporin, it's oxyimmunocephalosporin. When the first time that, you know, an oxyimmunocephalosporin was used in a hospital to treat a patient, these beta-lactamases sort of evolved or were discovered. And the first ESBL that was discovered was really SHV2. We did not know that TEM was able to get to that point. And it was found in a uh, Enterobacter Klebsiella. It's very fuzzy as to what the host organism was at that point, but what it was um, also on a plasmid. And the original investigators were able to transfer. And this was so, such prescient uh, uh, science that they did at the time. They were able to transfer it from a, one organism into an E. coli background and reproduce the phenotype. Now, when this came out, this was a single amino acid change. This wasn't a, you know, a, 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 a single amino, and Dr. Jacoby described it again very, very eloquently. And this is the first time resistance to a novel class of antibiotic arose as a result of a single amino acid change. We since went on to try to understand how one amino acid change at the 238 position in SHV, and it was also in TEM, and it was also, you know, those are the two main enzymes that were in enterobacteria that we were worried about E. coli and Klebsiella. That single uh, amino acid change at the 238 position really ratcheted up resistance to ceftazidine. And we didn't think that that was possible. We just had no idea. And other drugs that were introduced at that time, cefetaxime, um, also resistance occurred as a result of those single amino acid change. Now, as it goes, you know, it, you know, if one is good, two is better. And <laughs> unfortunately, uh, um, you know, it would be next that was discovered was a combination of changes could also a 238 and 240 were able to increase the MICs, you know, to a drug like ceftazidime. And then other positions in SHV, like at 164, 179, and 104. So it was a Constellation, what we discovered is that a series of hotspots in TEM and SHV. Now, there are a lot more TEMs out there than there are SHVs because it's more commonly found in E. coli, and E. coli you know, is more out there than Klebsiella pneumonia. So the world of ESBLs are more common in E. coli than in Klebsiella, but in Klebsiella, they played a big role. And not being able to use ceftriaxone, not being able to use ceftazidine, not being able to use cefetaxime was a big game changer. Now, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to bypass that. And the beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors were tried and uh, carbapenems. And I think, I don't wanna just talk about that because I think as we began to figure that out, how to overcome those ESBLs, the emergence of CTXM hit the world like a pandemic. And uh, uh, before you know it, CTXMs in E. coli, ST131, were disseminated around the world. So now you had three major enzymes, TEM, SHV, and, and CTXM that were responsible for this ceftazidine-resistant phenotype. And 
you know, that translated into ceftriaxone inability to use. And uh, um, it got to be very complicated. And there's been so much that's been done since then. It's, you know, Ryan, um, your perspective is, you know, uh, welcome at this point too. Yeah, you know, quite honestly, I had grabbed some popcorn and it was just enjoying that because that historical perspective is so incredibly important. And the thing that resonates to me as, you know, seeing this in, in retrospect is that single amino acid substitutions completely change the substrate profile for these enzymes, right? You mentioned the glycine for serine substitution at position 238 and then 240. And, and I apologize for this, but I want to be a bit selfish for a second here and ask if you can kind of describe what those amino acid substitutions do to the conformational changes of the enzyme that really change the substrate profile. And I think that's important for our audience, right? Because we hear things about the active site and the omega loop and the, the B3 beta strand and the H10 helix. What's really happening at the enzymatic level that's changing the structure of that enzyme? Well, um, I was very fortunate to have a friendship with uh, Jim Knox and uh, 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 Mishiyoshi Nukaga at the time. And Jim Knox was at, um, at the University of Connecticut. And um, uh, actually, um, we raised, we grew 152 liters <laughs> of E. coli cells. I, I know it specifically because my, my two boys were working in the lab at the time. So I, you know, I enlisted them as a cheap labor, <laughs> uh, you know, and Andrea Huyer was also working at the time. So 152 liters later, we got enough protein for Jim, and it had to be very, very pure for Jim to do the crystallography. And I remember um, driving to Stores, Connecticut on a weekend, you know, to work, you know, to be in Jim's lab when he actually got the data back from that. And what we saw was that this change of a glycine to a serine caused the, the, one of the amino acid strands on the uh, enzyme to actually move about one to three angstroms wider. So it broadened out the active site. So, you know, the, 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 the motion of that B3 strand and the displacement of the B3 strand, you know, from one to three angstroms. So, so what Jim did was something that was like almost Star Wars, like, yeah. at least for me, because I was an ID doc and, you know, I'd never seen any of this stuff. Um, so he takes, he takes a model of ceftazidime and it doesn't fit in SHV. But when you put that glycine to serine change, all of a sudden this big molecule fits. And I'm saying, oh my God, that's why. And um, then when you change the, uh, um, the, you know, you do the E to K change at the 240 position, that lysine um, allows you to get a, um, you know, uh, uh, allows another charge to be able to attach to the molecule. So it was an expansion and the opening up of a, of a new charge or the switch to a new charge that allowed that. So um, that kind of structural change, um, you know, was uh, uh, SHV was two was actually the first ESBL to be crystallized also. So, you know, that was a, you know, like a, 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 an incredible insight, you know, that you can modify the active site that single amino acid change caused, you know, motion of the B3 strand. Now, we've since learned that that ain't the only way it's done, you know, and, you know, other amino acids also get involved and, 
um, what Jim and Hiroshi Nukaga, Mishioshi Nukaga and others, and you know, a lot of work was done in France and a lot of work was done in the United States and a lot of work was done in Germany. You know, a lot of people tried to tackle this problem and so did people in industry. And, you know, I have to say, you know, Tim Paulskill, Sharia Mobishari, they, they contributed so much to our understanding here, but you know, it's those single amino acid changes that cause the expansion of the active site. Now, that ain't true for CTXM. CTXM, as Gabriel Goodkind said, was a natural cephalosporinase. That enzyme had all sorts of changes so that it could accommodate um, uh, cephalosporin. And Brian Soiket did the, uh, you know, he showed by using very fancy energy diagrams and all that sort of stuff, how cephalosporins fit very well into the CTXM landscape, CTXM topology. So, um, you know, it, it was a, a very interesting story as it evolved. And, um, um, uh, and, you know, at the same time, you know, you had, you know, why does the substrate profile change and gives you cephalosporin resistant? And yet, you were using drugs like amoxicillin clavulanic acid because they became hyper susceptible to clavulanic acid. The opening of the active site made clav even better fit. Uh, and um, the same wasn't true for sulbactam. Sulbactam was a little trickier uh, with that, but you know, when you became an ESBL, you got your, you increased susceptibility to amoxicillin clavulanic acid. And that's why we had that original test. You know, you put that in the lab, you know, the double disc diffusion, and, you know, you have a ceftaz or a cefetaxime, and then you have a ceftaz clavulanic acid disc 10 millimeters apart. And, you know, we used to measure it so carefully, you know, you know, just got to get right. And, uh, you know, you'd see those zones open up the next day and you say, oh, this is an ESBL phenotypically. And, you know, that was a you got to think of it in the context that we were making a molecular interpretation on a phenotypic test. And, you know, that was empowering. That was empowering. And, you know, you sequence those genes. And then it got even more complicated because the ESBLs picked up inhibitor resistant mutations. And you had these, you know, complex mutants of 10. We call them CMTs. Um, and, you know, uh, or, and even you had those that inhibitor resistant uh, TEMs or IRTs, and then there were inhibitor resistant SHVs. So the whole beta lactamase field, you know, it's like 860, you know, uh, 860 nucleotide, you know, and it got so complicated, yeah. you know, uh, you, you know, it, 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 you know, all of a sudden the people were just, and the clinicians were struggling. They were struggling because you introduced a new alphabet, you introduced a new concept, and you know you had SHV2, SHV10, SHV12, and you know the the docs were going crazy. Too many SHVs, too many times, too many numbers. Just tell me what I need to do. Yeah, and uh, mm -hmm. you know so that's how you know the roots of the Marino trial actually go way back you know, to the discussions in the lab that, you know, you know, which is a, a, a better uh, a, a antibiotic, you know, and is it because all the ESBLs are uh, uh, amoxicillin clavulanic or piptazo hyper susceptible, or they became also carbapenem hyper susceptible. And, 
it took a while to really understand how that notion evolved. And again, Mishiyoshi Nukaga and Brian Soika did some really elegant experiments. And what they did is that they put uh, imipenem or they put meropenem in an ESBL. And Shariar actually also was involved in that. Um, and what they saw is that these carbapenems really act, and this is the basis for some of the great discoveries you've made, Ryan. You know, why does, you know, when a, a, a beta-lactamase change its phenotype, another substrate becomes a really good inhibitor. And, uh, um, you know, that's what happened. The ESBLs, you know, the, we, we found that the carbapenems, instead of being, you know, beta-lactam agents, they almost developed this duality of function. They became like beta-lactamase inhibitors. So you have imipenem stuck in an ESBL and attacking a penicillin binding protein. You know, ceftazidine can do it. And it took over, you know, this, uh, it was like such a, you know, a heady time, if you will. You know, it was like we, you know, these discoveries were being made and it was very compelling to, you know, keep digging deeper and deeper into this. And then CTXM appeared and, you know, all the crystallography that was done with CTXM. And now Pablo Power is doing this in South America, is doing some great work with Avi Bactam and CTXM. It, I'm sorry, I'm talking too much. Oh, no, it's, ama it's amazing. No, thank you so much. Recent couple of decades, we've seen that evolve where there's now more than 200 variants of TEM, more than 200 variants of SHV. And so, you know, the clinicians thinking, thinking should, well, I've always been taught not to use a mox clav for ESBLs. And that's one of the reasons why is because there's so many variants now that have evolved different inhibitor resistant profiles. But the other thing I, I just want to recenter the conversation a bit is with CTXM, that was named because of its ability to hydrolyze cefotaxime, right? That's where the CTX comes from. That was found in Munich, so CTXM. So that was always made as a, a good cephalosporin hydrolyzer. And again, there's several variants of that. Now, in terms of overall epidemiology, I think it's important if you're practicing in the US, by far and away, the most common enzyme you'll find in ESBLs is CTXM. Roughly 60 to 80% of all ESBLs, certainly more common in E. coli than Klebsiella. And it's become synonymous with a highly prolific international clone of E. coli ST131 which is hypervirulent and usually harbors CTXM15. Among the remaining 20 to 40%, that's where you'll see your SHV and TEM variants. Um, but for all intents and purposes, we really treat all of these variants very similarly now. On the basis of the Merino trial and other work that you've done and many others, is we're usually prioritizing carbapenems for these types of enzymes. Um, so I, I just think the whole work is fascinating and how these enzymes have evolved over time is just blows my mind. The, the, the other real, you know, looking back, I, I remember when um, Professor Bauerfeind, uh, you know, there was a time when, you know, we used to look forward to every issue of AAC, you know, it's like, there was always something new that, that was going to be discovered. And, you know, we'd kind of wait, you know, we, we read everything about that. And then, then you know, then, you know, on, on Wednesday would come out, you know, and, you know, you'd find these new enzymes being described. And there was a tremendous amount of work that was being done in Europe at the time. It was just phenomenal. And, uh, uh, you know, but Professor Bauerfein found that, uh, uh, you know, that was a, a game changer. That was a game changer. And who would think, you know, that CTXM would take over? 
you know, Johan Pitou wrote a very, very, and, you know, David Livermore, Johan Pitou have been students of, of the dissemination of CTXM and, you know, have described it and uh, is a great story. But, you know, um, what became even more complicated is that not only did you have TAM, SHV, and um, CTXM, but you had these other enzymes that appeared, you know, GES and, you know, VEB and BES, and you had all these other what we called minor, but, you know, if you, if you have a patient that has that infection, it's not that minor, you know, it, it, it's a real problem, and particularly the GES enzymes, because they lived in a uh, environment of, you know, they could be carbapenemases and they could be cephalosporinases, and, you know, we only recently appreciated their impact when, you know, the new drugs like imipenem, relibactam couldn't be used, you know, because you have a GES enzyme in there and, it, you know, there's some resistance to relibactam uh, 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 and activation. I, I hope that paper gets accepted, but <laughs> that we sent to AAC, but, uh, um, you know, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's, it's it, you know, there's never a dull moment here. And, um, you know, as you look at the world's epidemiology and, you know, these, you know, variant enzymes have arisen out of Vietnam and variant enzymes has arisen in, uh, you know, Guyana and uh, these enzymes, even KPC, which is an incredible story. You know, when you look back on, I remember Hesna Yidget's paper with Fred Tenover, uh, Karen Bush, that was like, whoa, what do we got here? This is not good. And it was a, a surveillance study, you know, yeah. and, you know, that led yeah. to it. It was a great story. I think it was called Century. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, the Century yeah. data. Yeah. So that was fascinating. Thank you guys. I want to recap ESBLs and then move on to all of our other enzymes. And so in summary, to put all of that into context, where we're at now with ESBLs, there's three main categories, so to speak, three main ways we name ESBL enzymes, which is CTXM, the SHVs and the TEMs, phenotypically in general. And again, this is if you're looking at your patient's culture and susceptibility report and assuming only an ESBL is there, which is not always the case, you can have multiple enzymes and this is going to look different in different bugs. But let's say you have an E. coli or a Klebsiella, which are the two most common bugs that would harbor ESBL. What you're looking at if one is present is you're going to see cefoxetin susceptibility in general, Amoxclav and Piptazo may or may not be susceptible. Those beta-lactamase inhibitors can inhibit the ESBLs, but you may or may not see a susceptible result depending on what other resistance mechanisms are there. Ceftriaxone, ceftazidime are going to be resistant. Cefepime is interesting. It might report susceptible, but in general, we do not favor the use of cefepime for isolates that harbor an ESBL, which is where that comes into play of knowing the genotype and the phenotype. So if you have something that's ceftriaxone resistant E. coli and you're thinking ESBL, even if cefepime is susceptible, we don't generally use it. Same with H-trianam. And then your carbapenems are going to be susceptible. And then all of your novel beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors are going to be susceptible. And the ceftolazane tazobactam story is very interesting. We don't have time to kind of deep dive into that today. Um, but we do see ceftoltezo being susceptible to most E. coli's and about half of Klebsiella's and studies. You're using about a gram more of tazobactam with this compound at the three gram dose than you use with Piperacil and tazobactam. Um, and so we do see some susceptibility there. Um, and then treatment of choice, I'll just say it, we would say carbapenems at this point, based on the Merino data, based on a lot of data, although 
we can continue to debate for forever if you can use Piptazo and whatnot for you know urinary tract infections. MIC is less than one. If you know the genetics, of course, then we can make better decisions. But that's kind of ESBLs on a on a high level summary. So moving on, let's now talk about AMP-C enzymes, which I think maybe are my favorite. I think Enterobacter is like the coolest bug ever. And so with ESBLs, we're talking E. coli and Klebs for the most part. That's not to say ESBLs don't exist in Pseudomonas or Enterobacter or things like that. But like one, we don't routinely check these isolates. And I think that's really important like to remember when we're talking about epidemiology, the overwhelming majority of clinical labs are not sending every single bug for every single every single enzyme. So maybe they're present. We don't know about it. Who knows? But in general, we don't really think of ESBLs as being as relevant for Enterobacter, Citrobacter, and other inducible AMPC harboring Enterobacteralis. Uh, so let's talk about those. And AMPC enzymes can live on the chromosome as a part of the inherent genetic makeup of the bug. And they are in, inducible, which means, you know, they express as you expose that pathogen to a beta-lactam. But AMPCs can also be plasmid mediated like ESBLs, which is kind of terrifying, um, which, which means AMPCs can spread in the same way ESBLs can. So who wants to kick us off with an overview of, of AMPC enzymes? Probably Dr. Bonomo will come to you oh, and Ryan can chime in. But No, it, uh, you know, they have a rich history too. Um, uh, you know, actually, the first description of a beta-lactamase was probably an AMPC. Um, that was an E. coli AMC that, you know, uh, in that paper that was published in Nature on December 28, 1941. <laughs> Not that I remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's, got a, he's got a copy on his fridge. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, that was probably an AMC. And uh, I think we went back and verified that. See, the problem, see, see, the thing is, is that as clinicians, you know, you summarized it really well. Uh, these are chromosomal, they've jumped onto a plasmid. And I, I even remember when uh, uh, Dr. Tony Medeiros and Dr. Jacoby described the first plasmid-mediated AMC, MIR-1. It was named after Miriam Hospital in, in, in the Providence, Rhode Island, um, when that was found. And that was actually CMY. Um, I, if I, no, MIR-1. It was very close to CMY. Uh, but there's been since a, you know, a series of uh, of uh, plasmid-mediated AMCs, um, you know, that have been described. And um, I think they are, in, in some ways, more nefarious um, uh, because, you know, uh, you have a, uh, the clinician can be easily fooled. And, you know, you have a, a susceptibility profile that tells the clinician, you know, I could use a cephalosporin, and then the next thing you know, you can't you know, five days later, you have a derepressed enzyme or, you know, so these are, you know, regulated, you know, you, the, the genetics have been worked out as to how, you know, uh, how, how you can turn on and it's all peptidoglycan recycling and uh, the, you know, uh, cefepime, interestingly, um, is a much more stable cephalosporin towards AMPCs than, let's say, ceftazidine is. And cefepime actually has a quality where it gets into the active site of an AMPC and it doesn't get out fast. So it, it kind of forms almost like an inhibitor uh, uh, type. It's not hydrolyzed well. That's not the case for ESBLs, uh, but cefepime has it. And, and that's probably why 
when a lot of uh, new pharmaceutical companies are looking for a partner with their new beta-lactamase inhibitor, you know, to, to spare carbapenem use, they're, they're going to cefepime as one of their, you know, big guns, you know, in, in using it. And it's a great molecule. Um, uh, you get, incre you know, uh, incredible drug levels with it in, in, in a lot of different places. So, um, but I think that the, the important thing to remember about an AMP-C is that your early beta-lactamase inhibitors, clavulanic acid and sulbactam, do not do a good job inhibiting those AMPCs. Uh, tazobactam does, but it's pretty weak. It's not a really good inhibitor. Your new beta-lactamase inhibitors, avibactam, relibactam, um, and you know, Weber, they're really good at it. And the 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 what I I shouldn't call them the second generation inhibitors because they're not really second generation and I get criticized for that. But the, the more recent beta-lactamase inhibitors do a really good job you know, at inhibiting these AMCs. And I, I think they're gonna change the game clinically uh, uh, on that um, because I think what happens is that the AMCs sometimes you know, get an ESBL in the enterobacterial favorite organism very, very commonly will have an AMPC and it have an ESBL in it about 30, 40% of the time, 20% of the time. That's why you can't use cefepime against some enterobacters. Um, anyway, I've said enough, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's fascinating. And one of the first things that's gonna blow people's minds that you said is AMPC and E. coli. And of course we know all E. coli have chromosomal AMPC, the reason why it may not be as relevant for clinicians is it lacks the repressor gene AMPR to, to, to express the express the AMPC. So it's for all intents and purposes not inducible. So just to kind of recenter the conversation a bit here, the bugs that we worry about for inducible AMPC resistance for the Enterobacteriaceae include the Enterobacter species, both Enterobacter cloacae and Klebsiella orogenes and Citrobacter freundii. And those three bugs are the bugs that have probably been the best studied where lower generation cephalosporins induce further resistance. And that's why probably you need to prioritize cefepime or carbapenems as therapeutic options. Of course, in the absence of ESBLs for cefepime. There are other chromosomal AMPC uh, containing bugs like serratia marcescens, for instance, where the AMPC just doesn't, isn't quite the same. It doesn't have the same hydrolytic capacity. It's not induced to the same extent and there's fewer clinical data. And so, you know, some may argue that maybe you can get by with using ceftriaxone for some of those serratia marcescens isolates. And there are some exceptions, of course, uh, along the way. Now, other bugs that don't have chromosomal AMPC in the Enterobacteriaceae space include Klebsiella, uh, both pneumonia and oxytoca, all of our proteus species. And then also remember there's some citrobacter species that don't have chromosomal AMPC as well, which is important. So if you see a citrobacter, Coseri or, or Elamonicus, like these don't have chromosomal AMPC. And so you have to think of them a little bit differently than Citrobacter freundii. And these are things that you'll kind of pick up on susceptibility profiles as you see them. I wanna transition the discussion then into AMPC and non-fermenters, right? Because we know Acinetobacter also has chromosomal AMPC. It's often talked about as not being inducible but there's several variants and several variants of AMPC and, and acinetobacter known as ADC or acinetobacter derived cephalosporinase, which can certainly hydrolyze cephalosporins and a number of other substrates. 
And then probably the one mechanism in Pseudomonas that we're always thinking about is AMPC expression and how AMPC is, is regulated in Pseudomonas as well. And we know at basal levels or constitutive expression, it does hydrolyze the lower level cephalosporins, even penicillins. And then of course, upregulation can lead to further resistance. And so increased expression of AMPC in Pseudomonas has longstanding and potentially multi-drug resistant effects. So for instance, in Pseudomonas, if you ramp up AMPC expression, not only can you cause resistance to something like cefazidine, but you'll get higher resistance to piperacillin, tazobactam, cefepime, and then something that also may blow people's minds, imipenem can be hydrolyzed by AMPC and Pseudomonas, which we know imipenem is a strong inducer, and we've been taught carbapenems are stable against AMPC. Well, if you look in Pseudomonas and you look under the hood, you'll know that AMPC can contribute to imipenem resistance, but not so much for meropenem. And again, there's some differences and nuances there. So I'm with Aaron, yeah. like AMPC is just so fascinating okay. as an enzyme. And I think of it as an enzyme that can like do it all, right? Different yeah. levels of expression and structural modifications can also change the substrate profile, much like we talked about with ESBLs. So it's just yeah. a fascinating enzyme. But we're probably running short on time, but no, we're we're good. I just want to add on to that that it is, and I, I I love this topic so much because so the ESBLs, you know, you can really learn a ton about the enzyme, and because it's plasmid mediated, it's going to look very similar in in whatever organism background it is, with some some differences. Like for example, you know, actually we'll get into this more with KPC, but like a KPC enzyme is a KPC enzyme, but it can express a little bit differently in Klebsiella versus E. coli in terms of what your final MICs look like and whatnot. But AMPCs, I think it's important for our audience to understand because they're mostly what we're concerned about are these chromosomal inducible ones. There are plasmid mediated AMPCs, but those are gonna, what you see is what you get there. And yeah. you're not gonna have, as Dr. Bonomo described this like nefarious, insidious, underlying resistance, if it's plasmid mediated, it'll express and the, you know, ceftriaxone is going to be resistant and it's fine. Um, but these inducible chromosomal ones are unique to the bug. And so we can talk, you know, globally about expected phenotypes and that you'll get inducible ceftriaxone resistance. Cefepime is an okay option if it's susceptible. And Dr. Bonomo described why we can use cefepime here very eloquently. Um, but the AMPCs in enterobacters are not the same as the AMPC enzymes in Pseudomonas and their affinity for different bugs or different drugs is different, how they express is different. And that's confusing um, at baseline. And so ceftolazine is a really good example of that in that ceftolazine is just a bomb anti-pseudomonal agent. It gets into Pseudomonas very well. It binds to the penicillin binding proteins with high affinity. It is stable to pseudomonal AMPC enzymes at baseline. Of course, we see resistance develop, but ceftolazine is a bad enterobacter drug. It does it is not stable to hydrolysis by the AMPCs that enterobacter produces and tazobactam, as we discussed, is a weak inhibitor. And so that's like, I just think that's so interesting <laughs> like to talk about and think about. Any other thoughts on that? Well, uh, ceftolazine is really interesting. When you go back and you follow the course of this drug, I mean, it was almost by accident they found that it was really good against Pseudomonas. And the original papers show that against Pseudomonas, it had the lowest MICs of the comparator. And um, 
you know, so that was a, and it's no accident that they put Tezo back to him, you know, as its partner, because they were worried about, well, it's a cephalospore and it's liable, you know, to hydrolysis by ESBL. So you want to inhibit the ESBL and keep the ceftolazine there. I, um, I think those are, um, I don't know, Ryan, I, I, I think from a, uh, uh, from a stewardship standpoint and from a, um, a clinical standpoint, um, I, I really welcome the fact that we have ceftolazine tazobactam as a very potent anti-pseudomonal drug. But when, you know, I, I think we, we always have to be a little cautious, like in any, any combination of drugs, resistance to toltazo will develop on therapy. You know, the AMP-C is able to, the, the PDC pseudomonas derived cephalosporinase, you know, just like the ESBL story, can change itself and have these amino acid mutations in it that allows it to be a better hydrolyzer of ceftolazine. Normally, ceftolazine doesn't fit well in the pseudomonal AMC. Um, the K the KM is is, is very high, um, uh, but you know the uh, 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 but when you get those mutations, it actually does that. And you know, we're just beginning to understand why that happens, you know, in, in pseudomonas. And I, 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 I think, uh, you know, I, I think uh, 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 Dr. McCreary, if you had this conversation next year, we'd have even more information to tell you. Um, it's- uh, Yeah, absolutely. It, we can come back next year. We'll do another podcast next year and talk about it. Um, but yeah, AMC is fascinating. Thank you guys for that overview. I want to move on in our last 10 minutes or so here of this episode and talk about carbapenemases. Uh, so we've gone through ESVLs, AMPCs, and again, just a general disclaimer, there are thousands of beta-lactamase enzymes. There are other beta-lactamase enzymes with kind of niche and unique substrate affinities and, and, and phenotypes that we're not going to get into today because they're just not as common. Um, but the last kind of major class of clinically relevant beta-lactamases are the carbapenemases. So we divide these into two huge categories of the serine beta-lactamases um, and then the metallo-beta-lactamases, metallo-beta-lactamases, which use zinc in their active site. Of the serine carbapenemases, again, there are just hundreds and hundreds of different ones we can talk about, um, but I want to talk about um, two main ones. So first, KPC, um, and then the OXA, the OXA class, and then we'll get into the metallo-beta-lactamases, the main three of which are NDMs. VIMs and IMPs as we kind of continue on our alphabet soup of carb of beta lactam resistance and in, in gram negatives. Uh, so let's talk about KPC first, the most common carbapenemase in the United States and globally. Um, Brian, do you want to start? You know yeah. a lot about. I think you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. Ryan Ryan broke the drugs we developed to treat KPC, so we'll let him start. Um, yeah. So okay. So KPC, as you mentioned, is a serine based carbapenemase because it has a serine in its active site. It, and it's a good reminder for the audience here that we classify beta-lactamase enzymes by a couple of different classification categories. Probably the more commonly used now is the Ambler classification. So we talked about ESBLs that fit class A. We're going to talk about metallos fish class B. We just talked about AMPC in class C and then oxacillinases in, in class D. So KPC is a serine-based beta-lactamase in class A, the Ambler class A classification. And of course, in the evolution of beta-lactamases, this was really the worst case scenario. Um, first identified in North Carolina in 1996, a 
beta-lactamase that can efficiently hydrolyze carbapenems. And so KPC, of course, stands for Klebsiella pneumoniae carbapenemase. And at the time, there was initially KPC-1, and then KPC-2 and 3 evolved from that, and again, differ by just a single amino acid. And the differences between KPC-2 and 3 are relatively minimal. Perhaps KPC-3 hydrolyzes ceftazidime to a higher efficiency, maybe 30 times or so. But those were the two common carbapenemase variants that circulated in the United States for the better part of a decade and become, became endemic in places in the Northeast, particularly New York and New Jersey, extending through to the Midwest in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and, and Michigan. And that was the big problem for several years is how to target KPC. It also caught the error of the eye for pharmaceutical companies trying to overcome the next wave of resistance, much like we've seen waves of ESBLs and, and the more stable compounds evolve. It became a, a race to see how we could inhibit KPC. And that, of course, led to perhaps the initial accidental discovery of abibactam being a very good KPC inhibitor and then the intentional discovery and, and program for Vaporbactam and others that have followed now, Relobactam, Taniborobactam, and others that are, are coming. So KPC not only hydrolyzes carbapenems, but really all other beta-lactams. And for that reason, now we have to prioritize the newer agents that have specific inhibitors to inhibit carbapenemases like KPC. Um, and of course, you may mentioned of this, um, what is true in the bug drug space and resistance is that resistance is an inevitable consequence of any antimicrobial therapy. That's been true of every drug we've tried so far. That uh, was initially true with septazidine, maybe Bactam, when we used it to treat KPCs. Um, we saw mutations in the KPC gene itself in this specific region we mentioned briefly, the omega loop, which again changed the substrate profile. Um, really kind of better accommodated the septazidine molecule that Dr. Bonomo has shown in his laboratory and really kind of prevented abibactam from subsequently binding to and inhibiting KPC. Um, so again, even within KPC, which started out as those two variants, KPC 2 and 3, there are now more than 80 variants that have been described as a result of trying to target that specific enzyme. Very nicely said, Ryan. But um, uh, uh, but you know when KPC arrived on the scene, um, uh, we, we had we there were other carbapenemases before KPC. Yep. Serratia had you know SME one was there, and we knew about that. We knew uh, Bacteroides fragilis had a metallobetalactamase in it, but you know they 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 weren't that common, and Serratia wasn't a big bug. The fact that you had the marriage of a common gram-negative pathogen that could send its plasmid from Klebsiella into E. coli, which was, whoa. And um, uh, the, uh, uh, having a, uh, that phenotype in, the, in, a, in a common organism, a carbapenem-resistant phenotype, was, was, was very uh, scary at the time. And um, it was really interesting when you go back um, uh, KPC is basically an ESBL. It's a really good ESBL, um, yeah, you know, and it gives you a lot of resistance to cephalosporins uh, off the bat. And um, the carbapenemase uh, uh, functionality of that, you know, is related to its structural uh, changes uh, that it has compared to other class A. Uh, but um, I, you know, I think that the, the advent of the new uh, beta-lactamase inhibitors really, you know, came to the rescue here. 
Uh, and um, the fact that you could put Avi in there, Weber, you know, uh, Rally, um, really, you know, saved us, if you will, um, you know, oh. from a, a tragic uh, situation. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite patient stories is we had a patient admitted. Ryan and I, I I was covering stewardship call that night. Our medical ICU called me, and the medical resident was like, "Can you help me dose gentamicin?" And that's like always a weird call at eleven thirty at night. Like there's something else going on there. And so I was like, "Well, hold on, what what's going on with this patient?" Patient. Long story short, patient had come in in septic shock, and their most recent isolate was about a year ago, and it was um, a club pneumo that was resistant to everything but gent. And I guess, I don't know, maybe it was colonization in her urine, which is why we hadn't added additional susceptibilities at the time, but the Ceftazavi and the Mira Vapor weren't reported in the chart. And so, and this intern, you know, wasn't aware of the novel agents. And so they're calling to give this patient gent monotherapy. And this is really common still, despite, you know, how we've had these agents on the market for a couple of years. And so I looked at the patient, looked at the chart, knew from the phenotype and the bug right away. It was very, and the fact that I work at Pitt was very likely a KPC um, and recommended just starting Miro Weber empirically, like day one, hour one in the MICU, that patient discharged by like hospital day three, like rapidly recovered. You know, it's just like giving someone with a standard community pan-susceptible ESBL, ceftriaxone in the ED, they get better right away when you give them active therapy and they have uncomplicated gram-negative bacteremia. The phenotype doesn't change the disease course. And so Ryan like texted me a couple of days later. He's like, Oh my God, like these drugs work. Like this patient went home, you know, where they would have died five years ago. Um, and that it's amazing. Like these drugs are amazing and, and understanding the enzymology and being able to develop these inhibitors is it saves lives. It's awesome. Well, the, the, the other challenge is the metalloenzymes. And yeah. I know let's talk about, let's get into those. So talk to me about metallobetalactamases. You know, that's been, you know, They've been around a while, you know, they, uh, but it wasn't until, you know, NDM uh, really got on the scene that, uh, that things changed. And, um, um, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the medical tourism was very important at the time and people, you know, going from, and, you know, there was a lot of, you know, we probably shouldn't have called it that, um, you know, we probably should have thought of a different name, just like we have a new name for coronavirus. Uh, and it's very important to be sensitive to those, uh, to those issues, I, I think, uh, for me anyway. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, I think it's, I think the, the, the big things up ahead, you know, we don't really have a good metallo-beta-lactamase inhibitor like we have a KPC inhibitor. I mean, you know, in terms of our ability to understand the enzymes and our ability to inhibit and beta-lactamases, we're way ahead in the KPC space than we are in the metallo space. There are people trying really hard to come up with these things and, you know, uh, 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 they ought to be encouraged. Um, the other thing that we, I think is a real challenge is for hospitals where you guys work, you get uh, patients from all over the world. And when you get patients from all over the world, they bring their natural flora. So your sensitivity is increased, you know, to that. But in community hospitals, you know, if there is an MBL out there, it's gonna likely be missed until there's, you know, somebody sends it somewhere else for analysis. So um, I, I can't advocate for vigilance. I mean, we all should be vigilant. I can't advocate for surveillance, but 
They're very hard to treat these organisms. I know there's debate that's going on right now in our circles about the zinc availability and you know whether zinc matters in terms of MIC testing and outcomes. And that's not the, we, we really don't have enough time to discuss that right now. Um, but I, 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 I do think that from a pharmacologic, clinical and drug development standpoint, those enzymes, those metallobetalactamase, even though they're not common in our country, we should still be very vigilant for their presence and think about ways to overcome them if our patients are infected by them. Yeah. Do you know why, oh, sorry, right. But Dr. Bernoma, do you know why, or can you explain as, as well as you can? I know this could probably be a whole day's topic on its own, but why we haven't had an inhibitor developed yet for these compared to the serine? Um, the mechanism is um, uh, 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 the mechanism of catalysis is a little different, okay. um, you know, and um, uh, uh, we've just begun to understand the commonality of mechanism within the different MBLs to begin to approach a universal inhibitor. So people are working on it, and there are certain important structural and chemical features that you need to have in your inhibitor for it to be a good one, but it's lagged behind. Uh, uh, it's lagged behind the other ones. Now, I think there's hope on the horizon, the QPX compound, tiny borbactam. Um, the chemists that came up with those things need to be applauded for their uh, insight into, into that challenge. And, um, and I hope other people you know, uh, you know, are working on that too, to help with that. Yeah, I'll just add, I think your points about surveillance for metallos is so important because for the everyday clinician that has nothing more than just susceptibility testing, if you see resistance to sepazinib maybe bactam or meropenem vapor bactam and the patient hasn't previously been treated with one of those agents, you should be thinking about metallos. Now we mentioned NDM, which is probably more common in Enterobacteriaceae. We should mention VIM and IMP, which we see in non-fermenters as well, particularly Pseudomonas. And I think the worst case scenario, and we're seeing this now in South America, is metallobetalactamase producing pseudomonas, um, which is really a, a treatment nightmare. So uh, lots of enzymes out there. And then organisms that co-harbor multiple carbapenemases is also something that really keeps me up at night. We're seeing this in, in different parts of Europe where OXA48 and NDM are being co-harbored as well as in India. Um, and I don't know, Aaron, maybe we should also talk about OXA48 as the one class D carbapenemase that we worry about um, here. And class D carbapenemases, just to carry the transition through here, um, there's a few different variants that we're thinking about. In Enterobacteriaceae, OXA48 and OXA48-like variants are very important because they can hydrolyze carbapenems. Now, what differentiates OXA48 and Enterobacteriaceae is they're weak hydrolyzers. They're not as efficient as KPC or NDM per se, um, but they also spare the cephalosporins, which again, we're fortunate in that we don't see a lot of these in the US, but it is relevant in other parts of the world, OXA48 hydrolyzed carbapenems weakly, but not cephalosporins. So you may see preserved activity of cefepazidine or cefepime and meropenem resistance. The other thing that really is worrisome about OXA48 is the susceptibility testing is all over the place. Uh, many organisms that harbor OXA48 may actually test carbapenem susceptible, 
And we know from observational data that those patients that get treated with a carbapenem have worse outcomes. So this is a, a, where we started back a week ago is genotype phenotype, another good example. If you have the gene, and even though the phenotype's not showing it to you, it's where you need to use both pieces of information to get it right for patients. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, um, uh, the, uh, the, the presence, I think to Ryan's point, the presence of these evil twins, you'll get a serine carbapenemase and a metallobetalactamase together that really complicate things. Yeah, that's a really great point. And, you know, there's one other thing that I think is really important for our audience to understand about OXA48 in general, and that there are differences in many of these novel beta-lactamase inhibitors. For instance, we know Vaberbactam and Relobactam don't inhibit OXA48 well. Avibactam may inhibit OXA48, but is also partnered with a stable beta-lactam in septazidine. Now, what's important here is that OXA48, like many other beta-lactamases, is often co-harbored with other enzymes. So if you see, for instance, an OXA48 plus an ESBL, that's where septazidine, maybe Bactam, is going to be significantly better than septazidine alone. And the early observational data suggests that septazidine, maybe Bactam, is a very good therapeutic option for OXA48. And we have not yet seen the emergence of resistance, likely due to the stability of septazidine against OXA48 in general. So that's, again, another important point. Now, it also underscores something really remarkable about the oxacillin class D beta-lactamases in general is that they are highly variable. We see other OXA variants that are clinically relevant. For instance, OXA2 and OXA10 derivatives do have an extended spectrum that hydrolyzes cephalosporins and they may be considered ESBL-like. Uh, and often we see these in Pseudomonas rather than Enterobacteriaceae. Um, so there are important oxacillinases in Pseudomonas. And then I wanna go back to something that we started with early on in this podcast series about the importance of OXA1 in Enterobacteriaceae and specifically OXA1 that's co-harbored with CTXM15 that we see commonly in ESBLs, particularly uh, ST131 E. coli. And what we know about that OXA1 enzyme is it's usually just enough, plus the CTXM15, to push up the Piperacillin tazobactam MICs a few dilutions that appears to have a significant impact on the clinical efficacy of Piperacillin tazobactam, but also the susceptibility testing and where those MICs fall relative to the breakpoint. So many different OXA variants are clinically relevant, and you've seen some examples, but probably none of the OXA variants are as clinically relevant and important now in terms of new drugs than what we've seen with ACE Nidobacter and really our inability to effectively inhibit OXA enzymes in ACE Nidobacter that are carbapenemases. And Dr. Bonoma, I know you have a wealth of experience in this field. Well, that's, it's, it's a very, you know, the OXAs are actually like one of the most interesting family of enzymes because of their diversity. You know, you have to remember when they were first discovered, it was really peculiar that you could have OXA1 hydrolyze a drug like oxacillin, uh, an antibiotic like oxacillin. Oxacillin was not a, uh, it was supposed to be a penicillinase resistant penicillin. So, you know, you could treat PC1 bearing staph aureus with oxacillin and, and you know, and, uh, you know, uh, since these drugs were stable against staph aureus, they, you know, they, they were further developed and the oxa of oxacillin is because it has a hydroxyl group. The, the NAF of nafcillin is because it has a naphthalene group 
that's attached to it. And the meth of methicillin is because it has a methoxy group. So all that history or chemistry was developed because of OXA-1. And then, and then like things happen, you know, Mishiyoshi Nukaga and, and Jim Knox, they, they were actually very uh, uh, instrumental in, uh, in building that understanding of oxes. And people started finding more oxes like two and 10, and you're perfectly on target that the oxa 10 derivatives are very unique in that they tend to cluster in the uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Now, OXA-23, when it appeared, was not even OXA-23. I think um, Sebastian Ames in, um, in England described it as ARI-1, A-R-I-1. Yep. And, um, you know, OXA-23, when it came on the scene, was a carbapenemase. And, you know, that was a little bit scary. And then when OXA-24 or OXA-2440 came on the scene, that's also uh, described as a carbapenemase. And that stimulated significant interest in trying to understand how this works. And what was the, the challenges at the time, and they still are the same challenges, is that the reaction mechanism for an OXA enzyme is identically symmetric. The lysine at the 70 position is carbamylated. It, it works and that means it's got an extra CO2 group on it. It works uh, in acylation, it works in deacylation. It's a very symmetric mechanism. And when you bring that type of catalysis to the scene, and then you build a hydrophobic bridge in OXA enzymes, because it's part of the hydrophobicity of the active site that allows them to fit in oxacillin and allows them to fit the carbapenems. And you, you, you get a a, 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 in some ways, a spectacular enzyme. Now, they don't do a really, like KPC, they're not really great at hydrolyzing carbapenems. The catalytic activity is a bit limited, you know, uh, but when you put them in a bug like Acinetobacter, that's 10 times harder to put an antibiotic through its outer cell membrane. And these things are hyper-expressed or they're driven by the, you know, a specific type of promoter that's in front of those genes, uh, an insertion element, that turns on enzyme activity. And lots of enzyme is made, the barrier is, is low, and you get in, you know, you get this, uh, um, uh, per, you know, the permeability and the catalysis work together to give you a resistant phenotype. The other real problem with here is that we can't keep up with the, with the numerology of the OXA enzymes. And, you know, I know at some point we have to revisit, you know, what's our favorite enzyme and, you know, uh, you know, we have to get real nerdy that way. Um, but you got to remember that the OXAs are like in the 600 range now, you know, we can't keep up fast enough. And a result of that is that the um, OXAs, um, you know, because of the genetic environment, that they're found in uh, because they're in highly multi-drug resistant organism. And for some other reason that we haven't really figured out well enough is that they tolerate substitutions extremely well. Some enzymes, some beta-lactamases don't. And when they get a substitution, they end up being dead enzymes. Um, uh, but the, 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 the oxys so far, when they're found, contribute a lot to uh, resistance. And um, there's this you know, I, I can't emphasize enough the really good point you made, 
um, uh, 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 Ryan, is that you have some that have an ESBL phenotype and you have some that have a carbapenemase phenotype. And, and there are actually a few that, you know, we described a number of years ago that have both, yeah. you know, they, they, they can marry that phenotype. And when we, you know, when Dr. Dave Leonard at Grand Valley State University did those descriptions of these uh, uh, sort of like hyperversatile um, OXA enzymes, I got really worried because, you know, sub, you know um, uh, drugs like Astreonam, drugs like, you know, they were at risk. They were uh, clearly at risk. And fortunately, that hasn't gone on too much. The, the other real problem I see with this, and I may have mentioned this earlier, is that some oxes now are found with metallos. And I'd like to refer those as the evil twins. And, you know, you have this, you know, serine carbapenemase activity, and you have this metallocarbapenemase activity. And when you try to bypass that, you know, I'll bypass the oxa with a cephalosporin, the NDM's got it nailed, you know, and I'll, I'll try to inhibit the oxa with the DB, uh, avibactam, and the avibactam doesn't fit well in the oxa enzyme. So the clinician and, you know, even the pharmaceutical company has to deal with these evil twins. How do we bypass these sorts of mechanisms? And you know, there are opportunities, uh, you know, around that. And, you know, we, we can't dis discuss every drug that's been made, but, you know, there are opportunities, I think, for the medicinal chemist to bypass that and look at scaffolds that, you know, um, that can do that. But um, I think they're, you know, um, clinically extremely important, 2440, you know, very hard to inhibit. You know, a cell phone's act, you know, you can, you can inhibit it, inhibit 2440 with penicillinic acid cell phones. Um, and, but that has only been experimental. We haven't had the right stuff to, to do it with other agents as well. Now, Zytobactam, as it's coming down the pike, and we're going to need to check this. It's, an, you know, a DBO that's being developed by Wachart. Um, when we worked with Zytobactam in the lab, um, we were able to overcome uh, uh, oxacillinase mediated resistance by 2440. Um, I think the entasis uh, inhibitor, ETX 2514, um, I think also inhibits, uh, uh, inhibits oxa and also inhibits ADC, the cephalosporinase and acinito. So some DBOs are really smart. And, yeah. um, and uh, um, uh, uh, you know, they can buy, you know, they can get at those uh, fundamental properties to overcome these uh, bad enzymes. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think the, yeah, the new inhibitors we have in the pipeline, I think are very exciting. Um, and just to recap, Ryan and I kind of have a joke amongst our colleagues. If we get a phenotype in an isolate, we can't figure it out. We're like, well, it's either wrong, rerun it, or it's an OXA. Um, but I want to recap just for our listeners, since these are such a complex and diverse class, um, acinetobacter oxa enzymes are hugely important to carbapenem resistance. And so, and we see those both, both plasma mediated and intrinsic to acinetobacter and chromosomal oxa enzymes. For pseudomonas, are oxa relevant? Is it, and then how do we look for them in clinically? And then for the enterobacterialis, do, is this overly relevant and how do we look for them clinically? Yeah, those are really great points about acinetobacter. And I think you know, the enzymes that our audience are going to hear are, are common, right? So OXA51 is a chromosomally encoded oxacillinase and acinetobacter. 
which by itself doesn't cause carbapenem resistance. But as you mentioned, when you stick an insertion element in the gene promoter, then you can cause more higher level resistance. And when you couple that chromosomally encoded oxacillinase with a plasmid mediated oxacillinase like oxa23 or oxa24, this is where you get to higher level resistance. And that's really been a black hole for new drug development. And hopefully some of these new compounds you mentioned will help fill that gap. So we have reliable ways to inhibit oxacillin carbapenemases uh, in acinetobacter specifically, which is probably now one of the greatest gaps in our novel therapies to treat resistant organisms. Uh, so acinetobacter certainly continues to be a problem. And fortunately for many of our listeners, continues to be a rare problem that they encounter. You know, I think the uh, one good thing about um, the future here is that we're getting really much better at the de design and the application of novel beta-lactamase inhibitors. Um, you know, when you look at clavulanic acid and sulbactam and tazobactam, then you, we jump to avibactam, and now we have drugs like QPX7728 and the Venaterex compound. I think the Venaterex compound is um, uh, um, uh, 7145, VNRX7145, tanibor-bactam. Um, when you get to those drugs and you see the ability of those inhibitors to hit all the classes, um, I think that's a, you know, that's a thumbs up. That's a thumbs up. Uh, you know, you want drugs that can give you that kind of confidence in, in, in empiric therapy. Now, you got to balance that, you know, you, you, if you don't need these drugs, you shouldn't use them. And I, I should not even mention the word stewardship with, with you guys on, on the conversation because you, you guys are the emperor and empress of, uh, of stewardship. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, we have to, you know, we have to be mindful. Really good empiric therapy really potent empiric therapy, um, uh, mechanistically elegant in terms of how they work, safe drugs, but if you don't need them, you shouldn't use them. And uh, only, you know, save those magic bullets for when you really need a magic bullet. Yeah, exactly. That's very well said. Um, thank you guys so much for going through all of the beta-lactamase enzymes. I learned so much today, and I think this is going to be really fascinating for all of our listeners. As we come to the end of part two of our gram-negative resistance foundational knowledge episodes, we want to wrap up with a new segment of the Breakpoints podcast called I Feel Nerdy. So I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over our favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. And so for today's I Feel Nerdy, I want you guys to share. I'm so excited about this one. Last night, I was like, I can't wait to hear what your favorite beta-lactamase is and why. And I know there's thousands, so it's like asking you to pick a favorite star. Um, but who wants to go first with sharing your favorite beta-lactamase? Go ahead, Ryan. Okay. I'll, I'll get, I mean, that, that's not a fair question, right? It's like picking your favorite flavor of ice cream. Like there's all, they're all so good and it may depend on the day. Um, but I mean, the beta-lactamase that has really caught my attention lately, and, and it, it's interesting that it's catching my attention lately even though it's been around forever, is AMP-C. And I think AMP-C is just so interesting and unique because it is multifarious. In different host organisms, it can do completely different things. And we've talked about, you know, in E. coli, it lacks the AMP-R repressor gene to be induced, whereas in Pseudomonas, it has such a complex regulatory network that can, controls not only constitutive expression, but 
derepression of, of AMP-C. And so I find it really remarkable that you put that enzyme in different bugs and it does completely different things. But it's also interesting that AMP-C, much like other beta-lactamases we've talked about in this podcast, once you have single amino acid substitutions or mutations, you can completely change the substrate profile. And AMP-C can really do it all. Um, and we've seen this more recently, even with the novel drugs, right? Mutations in the omega loop of AMP-C and Pseudomonas uh, can lead to structural modifications that better accommodate the R2 side chain of septolazine, which was the whole reason why that drug was developed. And as a reminder that these beta-lactamases um, are highly variable and mutate readily. And what's interesting about these mutations in AMP-C is not only do they lead to resistance, but sometimes there's collateral sensitivity, a topic we didn't really talk a lot about today, but we see this with AMP-C as well and, and having uh, less of ability to hydrolyze imipenem, and you see maybe a reversion of imipenem susceptibility in that context. And then you take the same paradigms in Enterobacteriaceae or Enterobacter. Um, we see mutations in the R2 loop of, of, of the AMP-C and Enterobacter uh, that are caused by really cephalosporin exposure like cefepime, that can lead to ceftazidine, maybe bactam, and cefidrocol resistance without ever being exposed to those drugs. So AMC is remarkable to me. It's highly diverse and just can do it all. So it's, it's going to be my favorite today, but ask me tomorrow and I might have a different answer. I was trying to pick a favorite and he chose an entire class, but that's okay. They are fascinating. Do you want um, to pick a specific one? Oh no, it's okay. I understand. AMC is the coolest. So Dr. Bonomo, what about you? Well, this is like picking, you know, like Ryan said, picking your favorite ice cream or picking your favorite child. You know, that's no matter what you say, you, you, you're you going to say something wrong. But I, you know, I have to, you know, when I look back on this, I think there are two beta-lactamases. I can't distinguish between the two because they both have a, a special meaning. Um, SHV1, when it became SHV2, was a game changer. This was the first ESBL that was ever described. And a single amino acid change that created such a big universal deal, you know, in 1983, at the introduction of the HIV epidemic in the United States, this ESBL was first described somewhere in Germany. And, you know, it's like it flew under the radar. And, you know, 40 years later, we're still dealing with these ESBLs. And I think it was a paradigm changer in terms of therapy for uh, 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 gram-negative infections. And I think ESBLs, the SHV2 as a paradigm, you know, CTXMs came and, you know, uh, they were natural ESBLs, but SHV1 to 2 was a big deal because it changed the way we thought. The, the other thing, the, the other enzyme, I, I have a, a, a particular effect, and I grew up with SHV1 in the lab. I, I, you know, that's when, that was when I was still working at the bench and, you know, had, a, you know, uh, had my kids grow 150 liters so we could, you know, get the crystal structure uh, of SHV2. Um, the other enzyme that I think was a game changer was KPC2. I think KPC changed the way we think about using antibiotics in the hot. So I think SHV1 to 2 and KPC2 are my favorite, uh, you know, enzymes. And I, I think they changed the way we think about infectious diseases and made a big impact. Not to say that AMPCs are not super cool. Not to say that metabolism. <laughs> we still have a lot to learn in those things. But, you, you know, 
There's not as many derivatives of SHV2 as there are of the other enzymes, but you know, you, you know, you 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 know, the impact of having a, the first ESBL, I think, was very important in our therapy history. Yeah, absolutely. I love how we all love beta-lactamases so much. We're picking one and we're like, but I love the other ones too. <laughs> like they can hear us. Um, those are good choices. I think I would say recently, um, something that fascinates me, I don't know if it's my favorite, but mostly fascinating. Um, we touched on this very briefly at the beginning of the episode, but these inhibitor resistant TEMs or the complex mutants of TEM or whatever you want to call them, um, these have been briefly described, and we have a couple of observational papers talking about how to treat them, but these are E. coli's and club pneumos that are resistant to amoxclav, resistant to ampsilbactam, resistant to piptazo, but susceptible to ceftriaxone and susceptible to other cephalosporins. And we get these, we see these not infrequently, and people are weirded out by them being piptazo resistant. And it's my understanding, at Dr. Bonomo, you taught me this, is that these are just extremely hard to work with in the lab. Yohei Doi has also done some work with this, as well as Alina and a few others, um, that they're really hard to describe. We don't fully understand why they are the way that they are. And we think we can use ceftriaxone to treat them, but that hasn't been like definitively proven that that's a reasonable treatment option. Um, and so these are fascinating to me, mostly because the phenotype is weird. Clinicians, you know, are reasonably stumped by like, why is this piptazo resistant and ceftriaxone susceptible? So I think that it's just, again, it's an example to me of how like fascinating these are and how interesting bugs are and how they mutate. Um, and so those probably are something that, uh, those really interest me. I really like those enzymes. Great. No, I, um, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out why in SHV that that particular phenotype arose because you, you could, if you mutate the 238 position from a G to an S and you mutate the 69 position or the 244 position, um, uh, the 69 from an M, you know, a methionine to isoleucine or leucine, you get that phenotype. And it's, a, you know, it's a, uh, um, uh, uh, you can also get really high, uh, uh, you can get some resistance to even cefepime. Um, uh, with these complex mutants of TEM in SHV. So it's a, as you said, it's a understudied, you know, you can't study everything. There's too many enzymes, you know, it's like a Van Gogh picture, too many stars in the sky. And, uh, um, you know, it, the cosmos is vast, um, but, uh, um, you know, they, they, they do pose some challenges. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. I have been your host, Aaron McCreary, and our featured speakers today have been Dr. Robert Bonomo and Dr. Ryan Shields. This episode was produced by Zara Kasamali Escobar and Rachel Britt. It was edited and peer-reviewed by Eileen Ahaskali, Joanne Huang, and Rajiv Shah. Our production team includes Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Julie Ann Justo and Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials now and for the future.